Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. It's about what you make of it. Lots of interesting things happen to people. They they don't all become writers. Lots of interesting things happen to people who are writers, and it doesn't always translate into great writing. And that's because it's rarely about the raw material. It's about what the person turns the raw material into. As Vivian Gornick explains, what happened to the writer is not what matters. What matters is the large sense that the writer is able to make of what happened. And so it is with life generally. Events happen. Some people ignore them. Some muddle through them. Some turn them into transformative moments. Stockdale took those experiences in the Hanoi Hilton and made them into something that, in his own words, he would not have traded away. Marcus Aurelius made himself into the kind of blazing fire that could turn whatever life threw at him into fuel. He took being made emperor, a job that made so many of his predecessors into monsters, and he used this to become better. And as a writer, he made something great out of what happened as well. And this is what we must do. What happens is what happens. What matters is what we're able to make of what happens. And we have the ability to transform the raw materials of our experience into opportunities, into art, into growth. And this is how we become great. And this is how we live Amor Fati. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. 
you know, Stoicism is a philosophy that's supposed to be there for actual life. And yes, the Stoics were emperors or generals or artists. They they had sort of real jobs. And I think part of what, when we say Stoicism is a philosophy for real life, that's what we're talking about. You know, does it stand up to the stresses of, you know, uh, an elite or uh, life or death situation? But also, and I talk about this a little bit in Lives of the Stoics, the Stoics were real people in the sense that they were not like monks or they, they made no disavowal of earthly life, earthly pleasures, earthly obligations and responsibilities. Some of the middle Stoics talked about the importance of marriage, talked about the importance of children. And indeed, most of the Stoics had kids. They looked to how philosophy stood up to the stresses of family life. There's a joke about Socrates that part of the reason he was such a great and patient philosopher was that he had a difficult marriage. His wife was a difficult lady. Uh, putting the sexism of that aside, I, I, the point is that it's not just philosophy for the classroom and it's not just uh, philosophy for the public sphere, or your occupation, but it's a philosophy for your private life as well. And I, I got to say, nothing has, you know, challenged me philosophically, quite like having kids, being married, trying to consider success not just how my books do or how my business does or, you know, uh, how my brand does, but success as in, do I have a happy family? Are my kids being prepared for life? Are they going to be good people? Am I setting them up for success? Am I being present and dedicated and loving to them? So that's something I think a lot about. And in fact, uh, I, I try to see my sort of civic professional and personal responsibilities as being in kind of a balance with each other. And with one is out of whack at the expense of the other two, that I don't consider that success. It's how, how do you keep them all working and functioning well together? So you know, part of this is we have our Daily Dad email and podcast, which hopefully you uh, check out. That's at dailydad.com. But I'm also just always interested in sort of experts on parenting, family life, marriage, um, self-improvement, etc. And today's guest are two people who have helped me quite a bit. Um, some of the only people to come on the podcast twice. I'm talking about Dr. William Stixrud and Ned Johnson, the author of The Self-Driven Child, uh, one of my favorite parenting books. We sell it at The Painted Porch. It's always very popular. One of the books I recommend to parents all the time, something that's informed my parenting philosophy. And then they have a new book called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I think it's very much related to The Self-Driven Child. Um, but it's about com communicating effectively with teenagers, with kids of all types. But I also think it's just about communication, period. Uh, just intelligent, effective communication, which is, of course, the key of leadership, the key of philosophy, the key to life, I think. So I bring you Dr. Stixrud and Ned Johnson once again in a wonderful conversation. Obviously, I think it's particularly relevant to, to people who have kids or are thinking about having kids, but I think, I hope this conversation is relevant to just about everyone. I tried to make it not just be about parenting, but about effective communication and uh, 
and uh, dealing with uh, stressful emotions and uh, all the things that get in the way of effective communication. So check out the new book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. And of course, pick up The Self-Driven Child, uh, hopefully at The Painted Porch or anywhere books are sold. Hope you like it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. I had such a great time talking with you guys last time. I had some more questions about the first book, and then we'll transition to the new book, which I'm also very excited about. I wondered what you thought of this idea. I've, I've, I've seen people write about it. I've, I've heard people talk about it. But um, this idea that, you know, they're, they're sort of referring to like a lost year, right? Like for kids, this is a lost year. Uh, now it's going on year number two. Um, certainly, there's obviously been immense consequences to the pandemic. And it's tragic that it's happened, you know, that, that, that kids had to be affected in any way uh, by the irresponsible <laughs> decisions of adults and, and leaders. But I don't know, my, my initial reaction to hearing it, uh, and I guess we always have to think about where we're privileged and you know, what other people are going through, but it struck me as a very fragile view of our kids, right? Like when I talk to uh, my grandmother or my grandfather who lived through the depression, you know, they don't, they don't talk about it as this like lost year. It's, it's sort of a source of uh, wisdom and experience for them. So I'm just curious how you think, uh, having written so much about kind of the forced and unnecessary fragility and uh, of, of, of a sort of a generation of parenting, how do you think about the adversity that you've just seen all these kids go through? Well, you know, I think that Ned and I see that uh, quite differently than, than, than this idea that it's a lost year. In fact, Ned, Ned wrote a piece in the New York Times pretty early on in the pandemic suggesting that this could be an opportunity to, to build stress tolerance and resilience and wisdom uh, in kids. And you know, in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, we talk about the way, the way that, that people become able to, to, to what we call develop high stress tolerance, that, that kind of ability to function well and handle the challenges of life. It's by doing so. Is by being in a challenging situation, your prefrontal cortex has to, has to activate to figure out what to do, and then if it long, as long as you have time to recover, once you if you cope, you go into coping mode, then you recover. That's what that's what builds that confidence that I can handle hard things, and we, we see many kids who who are really thriving, who, who are gaining confidence. They can handle. Hard things. They can handle loss. They can handle uncertainty that they weren't sure they could handle before. I'd love to hear Ned's angle on this. I, I agree with all that. I, th I think there's also a question of when do you assess, right? You know, during the middle of the pandemic, right when it ends, a month later, a year later? Because exactly right, you know, that it's, ex it's the experience of, of adversity with support, you know, th that develops resilience. Uh, you know, and, and I forget if we shared when last time I spoke, I mean, you know, I had a family that had a lot of headwinds. My father's an alcoholic who eventually, you know, drank himself to death. My mother struggled with her mental health. I spent three months of seventh grade in a pediatric hospital. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But at this point in my life, I, I'm really convinced, you know, that I can handle almost anything because when I think about what I've gone through, you know, I'm like, it gives me the confidence that I can get through other hard stuff. You know, if you're going to be an epic hero in every movie, you, you don't just get, you know, 
you know, someone has sword on your shoulder and hey, you're the hero now, you got to go out and do stuff and you, you get, you earn it, you get beat up. Yeah. And it, because it's really, it's the, you know, it's resilience. If we remind ourselves that it, what, the kind of metallurgical definition of, of resilience is the ability to return to a previous shape. And, we, and, and I think that same thing applies to us, you know, emotionally, that the only way you develop that is if you get a little bent out of shape and then come back. And, you know, for, you know, before the pandemic, we had, you know, hundreds of articles. Well, the kids, they got no resilience. They can't, they'll cream puffs. They can't handle nothing, right? Well, now, now we've got our opportunity. And, and, and I wouldn't wish challenge or difficulty or hurt or, or all the terrible things. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But it really is how do we deal with that? You know, how do we come together? How do we try to find solutions? How do we convey courage to our kids, even though things are scary, as opposed to let's everyone go hide in a bunker and just wait for this all to be over? Because in the meantime, life goes on. No, and it, it's not, everything you're saying also applies to adults, too. There's a great line from Seneca where he's talking about, he's like, I actually pity the person who's never gone through adversity he says because they don't know what they're capable of. They have no they've never been bloodied. They've you know, they've never gotten up. So they don't know if they can get up. And so it, it's it's sort of strange that our, yeah, as you said, we sort of criticize people for not being resilient. We wonder, you know, what would I ever do if I had to live through, you know, a moment like this? Uh, or we think well, like, I, I, what would I learn from a near-death experience? And then then we have it and we we spend all our time resenting it and pretending that it's, you know, insurmountable. Yeah. It seems strange. Well, Ryan, I'll tell you this, you know, four, four, um, four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was now, I was in the middle of recording the audio for this book, What Do You Say? And I came out from the audio, I got my wife on the phone. Um, my son had been having all these migraines, these weird aura things. And there's some family history of that. And we get him on the phone and um, the three of us and his language and he drops a word and then he drops another word and then his language starts to fall apart. And I'm like, what is going on? Ask my wife to call me the other line. I thought he was having a stroke. Fast forward, my son's diagnosed with a brain tumor. Now, oh. fortunately, well-mannered kid that he is, he chose the one that seems to be most amenable to chemotherapy. And so he's going through the middle of this. But I swear, a week ago, he said to the two of us, he said, you know, I have had such a, 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 an easy life. You know, you, know I, I, you guys are great parents. You know, you know we we're financially stable. I have friends. I'm in school. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, white. I mean, everything that, that you could make, make life easier to get through life. He has, he's had so many, so many advantages. And he said, I always wondered when would something happen to me that would challenge me? And I thought, fascinating. Now, I don't wish a brain tumor on anyone, certainly not of on course. my kid. But I thought, holy smokes, what an interesting way that, that that's where his brain went. And, and his, I mean, he's a glass half full kind of guy anyway. But, very, I mean, it's sort of, he's sort of taken a line from, you know, uh, from the Mark, Matt Damon, the Martian, right? Let's work the problem. Okay, what are sure. we going to do? And, and because what, you know, what else can, can you do? And he's thinking, I'm going to be stronger for having gone through this. And what kind of message is it sending your kids that you sort of write them off as being irrevocably harmed by, you know, missing uh, most of fifth grade or having to do sixth grade or 11th grade remotely? It, it does strike me that in the, the scheme of adversity, you know, that's nothing compared to a brain tumor or nothing compared to yeah. what ancestrally we are all descended from people who endured far worse things. Well, yeah, and, and there's we, we talk about this great there's a researcher named Sonia Lupian who who used that acronym of knots of what stresses people out, and she said that one of the single best ways to combat stress 
is to have a plan B, right? And so, you know, and so what we always want to do when we find ourselves stuck, right, or in a hard position that we think, well, what, what else can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do? Because, you know, w- whether you're a family or whether a corporation, you're constantly saying that didn't work out as planned. How can we pivot? What's another solution? And so, again, this is a hard time. And, and I know I've had it easier than, than other families have. But I think one of the more helpful things we can do is to keep saying, well, that, yeah, that's lousy that you zoom on school. That's pretty terrible. And, and. Right. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? What, what, right. What's, your, what's right. your response? Right. What else can we make out of this? And I, we also, um, in, in both books, we talk about, we mentioned the work of Byron Katie, who's, who's thinking, mm-hmm. I think, is very similar to a lot of the Stoic thinking about the, the idea that for all we know, what's happening right now, whatever it is, is what's so, supposed to be happening because we, we, there, there's no evidence that, that something different is supposed to, to be happening. And uh, one of the people I've learned the most from is a meditation teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who used to say that, that the world is as it should be. And people ask him, well, why are you working so hard to change it? He'd say, that's also as it should be. And I think that, that we, we, we emphasize that the, the wisdom of, of teaching kids to, to, to not, not to immediately judge the word that this is bad or this is good, but, but to say that this is the way it is, make peace with it, and then decide, do, do, I, want to, do I want to try to change this? Could this be better? Well, that's the Stoic idea of amor fati, the sort of, uh, that comes mm-hmm. from Nietzsche, you know, not, to, not, not just to bear what, what has happened, but to love it, to go, this was chosen for me. This, and and, and I, again, this is easy to say you know, about Zoom, uh, fifth grade, it's harder to say about a brain tumor or losing a job or 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 what have you, um, or, or even the worst traumas out there. But the idea is, it happened. So having ha- having negative thoughts towards it doesn't make it unhappen, and it does make it <clears throat> harder for you to focus on what you do next. Have you guys seen the Jocko Willink video, Good? Uh, it's like the super viral uh, video, uh, but it struck me as similar to the self-driven uh, child philosophy, which is basically he's a Navy SEAL commander and, and, and he's relating this conversation where, you know, they're preparing for this mission or they're on this mission. And, and one of the men keeps coming to him and going, you know, hey, we're, we're not going to have enough time. And he says, good. And he says, hey, you know, we just lost all the supplies. And he says, good. You know, and he says, and uh, one of the guys is sick. And he says, good. Uh, you know, sort of over and over again, this idea of good, because, um, again, saying that it's bad doesn't do anything. Uh, but saying that, it, it, that it's good does inform the attitude to which you are going to orient your response around. And that, that's also what the idea of the obstacle is the way. I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not sure people were doing this during the Depression. They were probably spending a lot of time talking about how bad it was and how these, you know, fat cats in Washington were all to blame or whatever. But yeah. at the same time, uh, they, you, you, do, you do have the choice about whether it's going to be a formative experience for you. And it seems like parents have spent a lot of time blaming, resenting, uh, venting instead of going, here's how our family was improved by what we went through. Here's what we taught our kids, you know, using the world uh, events that were occurring around us as, as they happen. 
I think I think that's actually right. There's a there's a, a success coach from the '80s and '90s named Brian Tracy, whose work Bill and I both uh, yeah. liked a lot. And he and he has this tells a story about some industrialist in I don't know 1910 or whatever who summoned um, from his sleep to come down to, to only to find the factory engulfed in flames. And as the thing is burning to the ground, he sits there and watches for about ten minutes. And then declares to his secretaries or whoever ministers who are nearby, said, well, this is fantastic news. I just have to figure out why. <laughs> sure. Well, I, I tell a story in The Obstacle is the Way about Thomas Edison. He, he, yeah. Exact scene. Factory is on fire. His son is standing there shell-shocked. And uh, Edison grabs him and he says, go get your mother. Uh, they'll never see a fire like this again. Uh, just go get your mother and all her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. I think about the parenting lesson of that. Like you're essentially witnessing your dad at his worst, right? The worst career moment of your dad. You're watching your inheritance go up in flames, <laughs> but your your dad finds some semblance of good in it. And he, he rallies the family around and, and Edison does, you know, he says to a reporter the next day, you know, I've been through things like this before. It, it's going to prevent me from getting bored. And he rebuilds and he gets to work and you think about what a lesson that would be to your children. And then you go, oh, yeah, but that's, you know, that's Edison. I, I haven't experienced things like that. And it strikes me. It's like you did. That's what the last 18 months have been. And yet right. we've been sort of looking that gift horse in the mouth because the gift horse never looks like a gift. Hmm. You know, I, 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 in the self-driven child, we talk about um we have a strong emphasis on, on parents thinking about themselves as kids get older. It's more as a consultant to their kid who's, who's, whose role is to help their kid figure out what kind of life they want and how, to, how they want to live it. Um, and part of the reason that we, we, we support this kind of idea and want kids to practice making their own decisions is that I don't know whether a kid makes a decision, whether it's going to be a good decision or not. As, as Noda's saying, well, when, when do you judge? Is it a year later or five years later? But when I, I first time I went to I was graduate school, I was in I was in a doctoral program in English at the University of California, Berkeley. And I went 20, 20 weeks without turning an assignment. So I flunked out and it felt like my whole life was going up in smoke. And it took about two months for me to realize it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me because I, I, I just felt like an imposter as an English student. And, and when I became a psychologist, these are more my people. I, this, this, but who knows? I mean, who knows when something happens, if it's bad or good? And then the mm -hmm. idea of this is a wasted year, it, it just doesn't make any logical sense because it's, it, 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 you're making what we call the, the fortune-telling error that I can predict that this is going to have a terrible effect on, on a kid's life, as opposed to maybe uh, a mixed bag or maybe actually advantageous. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and 
start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. No, I think there's that Zen proverb about the man who discovers a horse, then his son breaks his leg on the horse, and then he doesn't fight in a war because his leg is broken. It goes on and on. But but the father replies each time everyone says, oh, you're so lucky, or they say, oh, you're mm-hmm. so unlucky. He just says, we'll see. And I, I do think what, what you're saying that I think is really helpful, I'm glad you said it, I'm going to try to apply it myself, is just like a elongate the, the, the horizon with which you're looking at this event with your children um, and, and try to get them to do the same thing. It feels terrible that they just got dumped. It feels terrible that they just got cut from the basketball team. It seems like it's a huge disadvantage that they're doing remote ninth grade, but we'll see because we don't know. And to think that we know is to be both arrogant and naive. Right. You know, this, this Byron Katie I mentioned who, who, who wrote a book called Loving What Is, which is you know, the basic yeah. uh, idea. And you know, it asks, simply says, when something happens, ask, is it true? Is it, is it true that this is a terrible thing? Is it true? Is it re- and can I, can I really be sure that this is wa- going to be a wasted year? And if we're honest with ourselves, we could almost never really be sure and then the question is, if, if I'm not, if not sure about it, why torture myself like this? Is, is this going to help me think about it? Is this making more flexible and adaptable? And usually, usually, usually not so much. Well, yeah, that's the essence of stoicism. Events are objective. Our opinions about them are not. And it's our opinions that upset us. So that's mm-hmm. the other thing is like, you don't have to call it a good year. You don't have to go in the, 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 as far as Jocko. You also don't need to go as far as it's a bad year. It just is, right? Like you don't need to have any judgment about it whatsoever because it's simply a fact and and you know if your kid was born with glass you know born with bat, eyesight that they have to get glasses you don't have to have an opinion about this it that's just what their eyesight is right like mm-hmm. you would obviously try to address it you know you have a kid who's good at sports and you have another kid who's not good at sports it's not good or bad it's just it's just who they are and uh your opinion is actually what's going to cause the distress because it's going to make one of them feel superior and the other one feel inferior when in reality we're all dealt different strengths and weaknesses and we simply are 
Right. Nobody gets everything. Yeah. And just going, going back to, to Ned's point about, you know, in both books, we, we, we say we, we want we want to communicate courage to, to kids rather than, than fear. And the last thing we want to do is feel sorry for kids. We, we don't want to pity sure. kids because we don't want them to feel sorry for themselves. I mean, self-pity is never it's never very attractive. It isn't never There's very, not a lot of agency in, in <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so that the idea that somehow, oh, this is such a wasted year, the poor babies, it's just not a helpful attitude. And it's certainly it's understandable, and and God, God knows so many people that we work with has been have been having a really tough time, and I'm not and I'm not taking that I'm not taking that away, but I am saying I don't want kids to feel far, far, sorry for themselves, so I choose not to feel sorry for them. So that that was how I was going to transition to talking about the new book because you know sort. We have our tropes as parents, as a society. You know, we say, you know, that uh, we, we talk about our our duty. We talk about our responsibility to other people. We talk about the American ideals. You know, we we talk about so much stuff, and then it strikes me that uh, you know, then our, and our kids hear all this. They hear our indoctrination, and they hear our myths, and they hear what we say is important. <clears throat> And then they look at how people actually behave and then they get a sense of the difference between, you know, action, uh, practice and, uh, and, and principle. And I think one of the things that makes me the most sad about the last year is just kind of, there's no nice way to say this, but we really showed a generation of, of young people that is particularly older people showed that young to younger people that they're basically full of shit, that they don't care about anyone but themselves, that this idea of sacrifice, this idea of uh, being resilient, this idea of, you know, putting other people first, of doing that the right thing is what matters, all this. It, how, how generationally can we, can we possibly communicate as a society? I, I guess I'm specifically referring to America, but no country seems to have done extremely well. But like, how can we communicate louder than our actions have communicated over the last year? It's, I mean, it's just been sort of abysmal. I think that's sort of the tragedy of, of the boomer generation as they've aged has been sort of those high-minded ideals versus the, sure, but I don't want to, I don't want to have to give up my vacation house or, you know, I don't want, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying? It, it seems like we're, we're really struggling between what we claim to believe and then how we act when situations are stressful or difficult or would come at the slightest personal cost to us, talking about whether it's mask wearing and vaccines or nimbyism or climate change. It, it strikes me that we're having, we're in a crisis where we've communicated so loudly our the disparity between our actions and our ideals. And when you frame that up, I mean, part of what I, what I hear in there is, 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 is when we talk about high-minded ideals, a lot of that is about the, the common good, right? And, yeah. and shared values and shared goals and, and shared sacrifice. And then you see a lot of people acting far from that, you know, really selfishly. Exactly. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty distressing. Um, and I'm not sure I have a full solution to that. I mean, sir, <laughs> if I did, we could probably solve, you know, political, political gridlock. Um, you know, I also, I also like, um, and this may be Pollyannish, but you know, the, the William, the great psychologist William James says, you know, our experience consists of that which we choose to attend to, because we can also look around to people who have 
evinced, you know, heroic ideals and have lived, you know, lived their lives with tremendous grace and, and, and done more than their fair share. I mean, my twin brother is a paramedic. And so he's a, he's about as frontline as frontline people get. Sure. And it's been, it's been, a, it's been a year and he gets pretty upset with folks. Um, but I also sit there and watch, you know, what him and, and people like him do and go, yeah, I mean, there are, the, the, it's not everyone, sadly, you know, m- m- many hands make light work. Um, but I also, I also try, well, what's it, Fred, Fred Rogers says, look for the helpers, right? Yeah. So I think there can be, while we gnash our teeth about, you know, goings on, I think it's also helpful to look to our, to when we're talking to our kids to help them look to or add people who are, who are living those, those, those ideals, even if it seems like those people are few and far between. Well, that's something I've, I've tried to, to think about too. You know, it's easy to go look at the lack of courage in these politicians or look at the selfishness, you know, in, in so-and-so, but ultimately what we control is what's up to us. Right. I was thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was actually just talking at a friend over, we were talking uh, outside and, you know, he's a pretty liberal guy and he was just talking about, you know, this, this, uh, this birthday party that Obama threw, um, what a missed opportunity it was for leadership to, to sort of, instead of criticizing what other people are doing, instead of criticizing the choices or the selfishness of other leaders or other groups, um, which, which may, you know, have the vast majority of impact, you know, maybe disproportionately causing the majority of the harm or the hypocrisy, but you don't control that what you do control is the choices that your family makes, right? And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is we'll decry the, the, the lack of courage in some politician or something. And then meanwhile, like, you know, we're afraid we're, we're sitting at the dinner table talking about, you know, uh, how we refuse to stand up to our boss. Right. Or, or again, we'll talk about this group, not doing this or that. And then we throw a big birthday party or, you know, we're, we're, we're violating the COVID protocols ourselves in our own small way saying essentially we want other people to be sticklers, but when it's my call, then I always have an excuse or a reason. I guess at the end of the day, what you communicate to your kids by example in the things you control is what really matters the most. That, that's, that seems mm-hmm. absolutely right. And I mean, especially when you know, teenagers are so perceptive about uh, inconsistencies and hypocrisy. And, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in our new book. Uh, it, it's called Talking with Kids About the Pursuit of Happiness. And what we focus on is, is that, that young people are growing up with, with all these nutty ideas about what makes life, what makes people happy. And we, we focus on some of the research that, that focus on the importance, for example, of meaning, of relationships. So the, the, the research that suggests that you're actually happier if you give stuff away than accumulate it for yourself. You're happier if you do something for, for somebody else than if you do something for yourself. And I think that... Uh, what we're hoping is, is that, and we're also, it's also mentioned that we're uh, in various places, we talk about the importance of asking kids to really think about their highest ideals with a family goal of all of us, you know, trying to live lives that are in accord with our highest ideals, because as you're suggesting, you know, we, we often don't, but it's a practice. It's a practice with the goal of aligning our life with the highest ideals. And we talk in our book, about helping kids do that, because in, in part, because it, it, it helps, it's, it's one of the keys to being happy, but also it's just good for everybody. 
Yeah, we t- we tell our kids, you know, like uh, education is important. And then it was like, when was the last time they saw you read a book, right? Or you know, we we tell them that like money is not the most important thing. And then we complain about the job we hate that we do for money. Or you know, we tell ourselves uh, honesty is important. And then they see us, you know, lying to get out of a ticket. And I think that's really been the difficulty with COVID. And I, I'm not saying that parents have been letting their kids down, but certainly. Uh, Gener- and a lot of these issues, whether it's COVID or climate change or just sort of kicking the, the political can down the road, we say we love our kids. We say that, you know, they're more important to us than anything. And then sort of generationally, we're not making the difficult short term decisions that would have, you know, important long term consequences. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like we're, yeah, we're not, think, we're not actually think- putting them first in the decisions we think about. I think that's exactly right, you know, and, and, and so back to the idea about values, that the, the more consistently we can write about, you know, journaling, you can talk about what are our, our core values, the easier it is to have short-term behaviors that align with longer-term goals. And that's true. I mean, that's true whether, you know, you're, you know, tr- trying to be an Olympic athlete or you're, you know, a, a business person or, or whether you're a political, political leader. And if, if our focus is always on the short term, you know, the next dollar, the next election cycle, the, the whatever, then we're, 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 we're not going to put, we're putting our energy into that short term thing at the expense of the future. And so, you know, for us as, as, as leaders in whatever, you know, whether it's business or, or, or faith or, or our families, that to, to spend time really talking about those highest values makes it much easier for, for our short term actions to fall in line with, with what we espouse to be our highest values. Yeah. What, what are you modeling to your kids and to the future generations in the decisions you're making and the actions that you're taking right now? Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder, you know, so, many, so much of what we think about and write about and talk with kids about and talk with parents about is, is this crazy idea of kids growing up thinking the most important outcome of their childhood and adolescence is where they go to college. Right. Yeah, and, and you just wonder, what, what do people who think that, what do they think the purpose of life is? Right. Is the purpose of life to accumulate the most stuff? Or, or is it to have the most prestige or the most power over people? And I think that if we really think about what, what, why are we here? Well, what, what kind of life do we want to create? What, what we, we, in the book, we talk about talking to kids about if, there, if there's a reason you're here, what do you think the reason is that you're here? What, what do you have to offer this world? And it's just a very different way of thinking than uh, you need to get A's so you can get to the top college and, and make a lot of money. Yeah, there's a there's an essay from Plutarch where he's talking about um, educating children and he's talking about how, you know, a wealthy parent, you know, they know they're going to pass on like a an inheritance to their kids. So they spend a lot of time and a lot of money setting up a trust fund or, you know, writing their will. So, it, you know, it, it, it so the kids don't fight with each other and the money is managed responsibly and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, wouldn't it be better? Ju-? And obviously, estate planning is important, but he goes, wouldn't it be better? just to raise some children who wouldn't fall out with their family over money, you know, or wouldn't, uh, you know, would be able to manage, you know, an inheritance uh, properly, you know, like, so it is interesting. Yeah. We we sometimes forget that, like, just raising an adaptable, hardworking, decent human being 
Those people are very rarely unsuccessful in life. Meanwhile, a lot of people go to great schools or get great grades or do amazing on the SAT, and they completely fail at life because they don't have those other skills that we're just talking about. Hmm. You know, I, I was lecturing in, in uh, Houston. I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, Ryan, but I was lecturing in Houston a couple of years ago about the self-driven child. And I mentioned one of the most elite schools in D.C., and I don't remember the context, but I, I did. And somebody came up to me afterward and said, I'm, I'm a therapist here at the Menninger Clinic in, in Houston, which is one of the very prestigious mental health places. So we, we know the school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates, they get into these top colleges, but they can't handle them emotionally. You know, they've never had to deal with adversity. They've had their kind of life program for them. And so they, they, they take a medical leave and they come here for treatment. And I think that, that you know, Ned and, Ned's in my angle is that, that our goal for kids is for them to be able to run their own life before they go off to college or go off to do whatever they're going to do. And, and so that, that's our goal for as parents is, is, is helping kids learn to run their own life and run it in a way that's, satis- that's meaningful to them. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That's code daily stoic order using DoorDash today for eligible users only terms apply. Well, and this ties into the new book, which is like one of the most essential skills in running one's own life, in adapting, in dealing with adversity, whatever, is the ability to communicate. Uh, Mm -hmm. to accumulate effectively about what you want, to accumulate effectively about what you need, what you like, what you dislike. And so I guess it shouldn't surprise us that parents who can't communicate effectively struggle to raise children uh, who then uh, struggle to effectively communicate. 
Well, yeah, and it's, you know, and it's, it's, that's, it's very well said, and, and really the reason we wrote this book, in part because when, you know, when in the self-driven child, we have great concerns about the, the increasing levels of stress, anxiety, depression in young people, and a close connection between parents and children it, it is as close to you get, as close as one gets to silver bullet against the effects of stress. You know, we're back to that adversity plus support will develop resilience. And part of that close connection is how effective are we in communicating with kids, in, in, in having them know that we understand them, that we see their point of view, and in and, and listening to them and having them be able to listen to us. And so if, 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 if a, as a parent, you have ideas that you want to share, but you're just not effective in how you communicate it, then everybody's upset because your kid feels being nagged or yelled or harassed. You feel like your kid isn't listening. And so often it's, it's the how, not the what. And, and then no one feels listened to, no one feels connected. And again, the, the messages, the, the values that you're trying to share, just, well, those go, you know, those fall on the cutting room floor. And so we really took seriously this, this, the, the, the value of, commu- of learning to communicate effectively rather than sort of, you know, shoving things down kids' throats in part because these are also the models, uh, you know, of, of, of communicating effectively, communicating respectfully are the very same tools and of communication that those our, our kids will then take out into the world, into the college and their relationships and their workplace. And goodness knows, I, I mean, when, for me, at least when I watch um, so what, what seems to me like misbehavior in the political realm, it feels a little bit like whoever can harness the most outrage, whoever can be the most angry is, is the person who sort of wins the battle. And I have a colleague at work who she and I are very different ends of the political spectrum. We have hold very different ideas, but somehow, and it's probably more, 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 more her graciousness than mine, we can disagree. We can disagree agreeably. I can hear her perspective. I can say, okay, you know, tell me why you think that, right? And we work together beautifully. We don't agree all the time, but we work together beautifully because we communicate in ways that confer respect, even when we disagree. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, showing your kids, uh, I think one, one of the things that I, I sort of remember growing up listening to a lot of talk radio, watching mm. a lot of Fox news, sort of this stuff. And you, you realize only, only when I you know sort of got out of that bubble a little bit and, and, uh, let's, let's get a proper liberal arts education, nothing to do with liberal or conservative, but just like actually learned how to think and how to communicate. Mm-hmm. Did I come to recognize how profoundly manipulative and dishonest and uh, uh, inaccurate the communicate, like, like you sort of, you realize what's happening, right? And so I think a lot of parents struggle with, with not just what they're communicating, but even teaching kids how to recognize like what bullshit is or what biases <laughs> are. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like communication isn't just like, how do you say what you want to say, but also making them aware of like, I mean, clearly generationally, we, we, we see people who are just much, very susceptible to conspiracy theories, very susceptible to demagoguery, et cetera. Like also teaching our kids you know, by effectively communicating, teaching them how to communicate, you're also doing them the service of teaching them how to recognize bad or insufficient or manipulative communication. So they're they're inoculated against that. That's, that's a wonderful point. You know, and I think anybody who's, who's raised teenagers and has had the experience of teenagers 
in, in, their, in their effort to kind of separate and find their own identity. We'll, we'll push back on what the parents believe or challenge things. And if we can listen respectfully, and we can, we, we can listen in a way and, and, and let them know that we're really trying to understand they're much more likely than, than, than to, to, uh, to, to, in some cases, to realize that, that actually I, I kind of like the way my parents think, or I, mm-hmm. I, I disagree with this, but, but, but that if we, just, if we just lecture them, we try to indoctrinate them, it, it just doesn't work very well. And it just, you know, Ned and I just um, were talking last week about this article that David Brooks uh, wrote last week in, in the New York Times about the, this shocking percentage of, of, of adults who, are, who are, are estranged from at least one of their parents. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's like 27%, you know, are, are estranged from a parent. And it's just so painful to think about that, that people that you love the most, they don't, they don't want anything to do with you. And that's kind of, the, that's hopefully that, 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 that what we're talking about in our book, that this way of, of staying connect with your kids, staying, treating them in a respectful way, communicating in a way that, that you're assertive when you have to be, but, but, and you're challenging when you have to be, but also that you respect them as people. And, and the, the people you want to have, have a relationship, as, as Ned, Ned pointed out, uh, last few weeks, we're going to have a longer time, hopefully, with our kids as adults than we are with them as kids. No, I, I relate to that very much, and I, I've, I've I've written about it a, a bit. Where, and this goes to what we we're talking about earlier. I think I think generationally, you're seeing a lot of young people, especially people my age, <laughs> struggling with this idea of like. Here are the values my parents raised me with. Here are the things they said were important. I didn't agree with all. Uh, and then, you know, here were their political beliefs. Here's what they said was important, why they voted the way that they did. And then what do you do when you watch them throw all of that out the window because, you know, this is what their party is endorsing now or worse, you know, because they read some thing on Facebook or watch some random, you know, video about it. I think people are struggling with the like, wait, these people who I admired and respected and always thought were operating at a certain sort of mental level are now, you know, making medical decisions based on an email they were forwarded and that they're forwarding me. I think generationally, a lot of people are struggling with, again, that that divergence from, you know, sort of the ideal and the reality. And I think that's been really hard. Yeah, I think it has been really hard. <laughs> I think it, you know, and and part of it is, um, you know, if you go back to that 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 the seeking to understand perspective, we know that the more that we sort of you know try to convince someone that they're wrong, the more that they the more that they they, they sort of they're, they're, they they get more entrenched in their beliefs. We we take a n- note from some of the lessons from what's called motivational interviewing, which is first done with um, with alcoholics. And more these, these people who are trying trying to trying to get people to stop, you know, their substance use, uh, abusive use of alcohol, and you know they tell me like if you, if you don't quit, you're going to lose your your health, your 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 job, your your family, blah blah blah, and they would just dig in even deeper. Whereas if they well, so tell me about your relationship, you know, with that, with alcohol. I mean, we we have a story in a book about a, a school counselor who was working with a young woman who was smoking a ton of pot. And she first came when the, she said, look, I'm not going to try to tell you, I'm not going to be the umpteenth adult that tells you why, why all the problems with pot. And to be completely clear, we're, we're not advocating drug use, particularly for young people. But she took this perspective. She said, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to, to talk you out of it. But I'm, I'm curious, tell me about, tell me about well, what, is it, what does it do for you? 
And the girl was sort of, you know, waxed, waxed rhapsodic about how it, it made her feel more relaxed. She, she, she felt cool around these kids that she wanted to be friend with, you know, on and on and on. Um, but, but then at some point she said, but, but it does cost a lot. And so in this motivational interview and you listen, you don't judge and you don't try to tell them why, but you look for change talk. And so the counselor said, well, well, tell me more about that. She says, well, you know, I buy twice a week and it's pretty expensive. She said, okay, well, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you only bought once a week, if you had more money, what, what, what would you do instead? Well, I, I don't know. I, you know, I have these pair of shoes my friends had. I really like those. And maybe, maybe I get my hair done. Okay. And she didn't lean in and say, look, look at all the great things you're going to have if you stop smoking so much. She, she didn't do that. And she just listened and reflected back. And a week or two later, the girl, came, she saw her walk down the hallway and she had her hair cut. I said, oh, that looks really cute. Well, well tell me about that. Well, you know, I, I realized I could probably buy, buy once a week and smoke a little less. And yeah, I do like the way my hair looks. And I sit there when I think about, you know, things like political disagreements where I don't want to yell and fight and try to use, you know, force of, of logic, even though I'm com- convinced that I'm right most of the time. Because what I do is I build a big, you know, this is the way I'm built. I build a bigger wall and I make it that much harder for a person who maybe the person does realize that they're wrong. I make it, make it they have to climb all over the wall to come on my, to my side. As opposed to if we keep the wall really low and we don't, we don't pitch a fit, it makes it easy and say, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll tiptoe over to that side for a while. This friend of mine who I mentioned at work, who we have very different political beliefs, changed her political party to independent. I won't say which side she started, changed to independent. And I thought, well, okay, we're halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 this, uh, this motivational interviewing that Ned mentioned, it, it's, it's um, at its core, uh, is this this active or reflective listening, which was developed in, in some ways by, by Carl Rogers, uh, who was a, one of the really uh, influential psychotherapists in the 1960s and 70s. And, and um, Rogers' thing was was to let people to try to communicate to your clients that you really that you understand them, and you do that as they're talking by by, by kind of summarizing or, or, or paraphrasing what, what they're saying. You know, am I getting this right? And I think that I, I've, I've often wondered, I mean, I, I personally find debates boring because nobody's listening to each other. Just thinking, I'm just thinking when, when you're talking, I'm thinking, how can I refute what you're saying? And I, 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 I've always wished that we'd have some kind of uh, Sunday talk shows where people had to, when a conservative listened to a liberal argument, had to, had to summarize the liberal's argument in a, in a, mm-hmm. in a respectful way. And then be, before he responded. And this, which is a, this is a really big technique in marriage therapy as well. And, and, if, and if our leaders practice this kind of respectful listening to each other and could actually, with, with being open to learn from each other, we, we, we wouldn't see this kind of um, t- tremendous kind of gridlock that we see. Yeah, I, I would say uh, part of what I would consider an essential set of lessons for kids would be, you know, an understanding of cognitive biases, an understanding of of sort of uh, traps or mistakes, logical fallacies. And then um, one, one thing that I learned relatively late, but I, I, it's something I love, is the idea of like, can you steel man? Can you argue against a steel man instead of a strong man? So, you know, most of what you watch, as mm. we're talking about with like a Fox News or a conservative radio or something, is is a lot of dunking on straw man arguments, right? Disagreeing with things that no no one essentially believes in and making it sound like you're some sort of fearless warrior for the truth. Steel manning is, 
well, why does someone believe this? Why do they think? What is the argument hmm. for this thing that we disagree with? Or what, what logic is the other side operating under? And then how can you... Uh, how can you then use that to strengthen your own arguments or your own beliefs or, you know, in, in some instances, change your mind as you're talking about because you realize, oh, I, I may have been on the wrong side of this. So I guess this goes back to modeling. It's like, how often have your kids uh, seen you change your mind? You know, how often have you ever been convinced by their arguments for something? And then conversely, you expect them to just be convinced to do what you say because you said so. You know, it's, I think, how do we show our kids what good thinking, good, clear communication, you know, sort of mental resiliency looks like? That's probably the best way to pass it along to them. That's, that's, such, that's such a great point. And I, I, I think that, that when, when um, I'm just thinking back a couple of conversations, I mean, <laughs> I'm going back, you know, to 50 yeah, years now, but by, with my own, more than 50 years, my own father. And where, where he, we, we talked about stuff and, and he said, you know, that's a really interesting point. You know, I never really thought about it that way. And in, in terms of, 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 of making me feel confident and courage, having my father basically say, I'm, I'm willing to see it differently. It, it, it was a very empowering thing. Yeah, I listened um, to a podcast with, Mal, with Malcolm Gladwell. He was talking about what he learned from his father was that his father would, would never pretend that he knew something in the course of a conversation. If someone's like referenced something, he would never have pretended to have heard of that or to have huh. watched that movie. He would go, I don't know about that. What is that? And you can see in someone like Malcolm Gladwell, you know, perhaps where his uh, curiosity and yeah. and sort of, uh, you know, um, wh where what makes him Malcolm Gladwell, you can see where that came from. Right, right, right. It. Yeah. And certainly we, we talked to it uh, in, in this new book about just how simply how powerful it is to apologize. Sure. And when, when, when we, to, to our kids, when, when we act badly, um, to, to, to simply say, I, I, I was wrong. You know, I, I, was, I, was, I was tired. I, I was really stressed. I'm sorry I, I took it out on you. Uh, you. You're the most precious thing in the universe to me. And I think, think that I, I, I'm old enough that I don't remember specific incidences, but I remember when I was 40 <laughs> that I could still remember times when my father had gotten mad at me and came into my, came into bed, my bedroom that, that night and really was, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I, just, I can't tell you how much I love you. And I just, and I really, I was really stressed or whatever it was. And, and it just, it made, it made me feel so respected. And I think that changing, being able to change our minds, being able to say that we were wrong, being able to say that I'm learning, I learned from this uh, is, is a really powerful message for kids. Well, one thing that I picked up in, in the book, you were talking about how painful it is for a kid to have something they want to communicate or have a feeling and not be able to, because they don't have the words, they don't have the concepts. And I was just thinking about this with my oldest, who's five or turning five shortly, you know, he'll do something wrong, you know, he'll knock over his brother or, he'll, you know, throw, throw something or, you know, he'll do something. And, you know, when, when he, when you sort of get, get up close to him and you say like, Hey, I, I, you can't do that. That's not a good idea. Or, you know, we talked about this, not, not, not like sort of, even in the way that I remember as a kid, sort of being aggressively kind of, you know, manhandled or told what not to do, even the most sort of polite or, 
you know, uh, uh, gentle reproach, um, you can tell that this is that he's overwhelmed with emotion. And so like sometimes he'll spit or he'll pull away or he'll he'll say something mean um, when he's feeling this. And and thinking about your book and, and trying to practice some empathy, my wife and I were going, well, what's happening is he's being overwhelmed by the emotion of shame for the behavior that he just committed for, you know, being communicated now, you know, in a, even a gentle reproach. But he lacks the ability to say, like, uh, I wish I hadn't done that. He lacks the ability to say, well, here's what I was thinking. You've misunderstood me. Or even even the like, I don't like this or or like, hey, I'm not a bad person. Why are you making me feel like a bad person? He's being overwhelmed with an emotion that he can't communicate about. And so he's communicating instead via behavior, not good behavior. But as they say, behavior is the sort of natural language of children. It strikes me that communi- providing your child the tools to communicate effectively and also understanding when um, they can't communicate and not being too hard on them is an immense uh, sort of release for them or or sort of it's an immense um, relief of discomfort for them that that they didn't even necessarily understand they were experiencing. I think that's right. And, and one of the things we talk about is you're not going as a parent, you're not going to deliver an effective message when a kid's emotions are that high. We do, of course, want to address the behavior and, and help kids figure out a better way, you know, than spitting or throwing something or a brother or giving them the elbow to, you know, to, to communicate your, your, your frustration, your needs, your wants or whatever. Sure. But we can start with some like, wow, you look like you're pretty, you're pretty upset about what happened there. No, I didn't approve of his behavior. I didn't say it's okay to get, you know, throw an elbow at your brother or to throw a toy, but I'm acknowledging you you know, you look like you're pretty upset there. And we start with this empathy and this acknowledgement, this validation as a way to calm the hard emotions and bring the, you could have the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of your brain back online. And so we use this acronym of SURE, where, you know, first thing you, you, you stay calm, you don't get, you know, don't get upset yourself as the parent because then you become part of the problem. You seek to understand, so you look, you seek to understand, you look like you're pretty upset there. Can you tell me what's going on there? And not looking for evidence to pounce on them. You then re- reframe it, you know, you re- reflective listening. So, so what you're telling me is your, your, your brother took something early in the day and you're still mad about that. Do, do, is that about right? And then you explore options. So let's think about, let's talk about how we can do this better because you probably don't feel re- really good about like, like you're such a great, like older brother for, for throwing something at him. And, and as your dad, that's just not going to pass muster with me. But I understand why you're frustrated, but, but, we, but this is not behavior. How you're handled, this is not the way I want you to handle this in the future. And we do this in a, in, in a gentle, respectful way by not, you know, by sort of being a non-anxious presence ourselves in that, it, because that will calm the hard emotions and help our kids be able to then think about more effective ways to handle di- di- um, disagreements, more effective ways to handle their own hard emotions rather than just coming down on like, that's unacceptable behavior because arguably if they already had more effective ways to express and handle those situations, they would have used them. You know, I mean, you know, kids, kids do well when they can. And if they can't, we want to figure out how to help them do it better next time. Yeah. That's a beautiful expression. Kids do well when they can. Tell me about that. Who's that from Bill? (laughs) Well, yeah, um, 
Is that Jake Nelson? Th- no, that's um, Ross Green. Uh, Thank R- you. Ross, uh, Ross Green, who um, has really popularized the idea of collaborative problem solving with, with kids, um, as, as, and as opposed to uh, other forms of discipline. And there's, there's, a, there's a chapter at the very end of our new book. Uh, uh, it's called, uh, What About Consequences? And because, because in our first book, we talked so much about, about the, the power of, of a, a sense of autonomy or a control or agency in kids. Um, people would ask us when we'd lecture about it, well, what about consequences? Don't kid these consequences. And what we point out is, is that the root of the word discipline is to teach. We, yes, we want kids to learn from their experience. But we love, the, the, we love this line from Jane Nelson, who, who wrote a classic book called Positive Discipline, which is, where did we ever get the crazy idea that in order to help kids do better, we have to first make them feel worse by coming down on them or shaming them like, like that? And, and I think that we, I just love that idea. And, and you, I think you said it very, very well, Ned, that there, there's many ways that we can help kids learn from their experience that they don't don't. Uh, in, involved, getting mad at them or, or coming up with some negative consequence for them or shaming them. Uh, and there's, they're, they're sensitive kids that anytime they're corrected, they, 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 they tend to go towards that shame or, or kind of resentment. And you got really sensitive kids and it takes even more kind of sensitive handling. Uh, but but the, the idea is, is simply that we, what we want is to, for, for kids to learn from their experience so that they, be, they, they become skilled at paying attention to their own experience and, 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 and learning from it. Yeah, I and, mean, I'm, I'm an adult. I don't like being reproached. They're like, when, <laughs> when, when somebody does that to me, I, there's a part of me that wants to pull away or deny or lash out. You know, it's, it's sort of like, why would you expect a, a child to be magically better at something that you haven't even mastered and you've been on the planet for decades more than that. It's a a great point. And, you know, because in in part, because these executive functions of, of, of putting things in perspective and controlling our emotions, I mean, these, these are, these are skills that develop, ideally develop over time. And so you're absolutely right. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not reasonable and you're going to be disappointed if you think that a four or five or 12 year old is going to be able to have the same self-control that we, that we, we would expect of a 25 or a 35 or 45 year old. Um, in, in addition to that, there's also the observation that the, the kids who get the most punishment tend to learn the least from it. Right. And, and we, we want, we just want, we want, as Bill said, we want kids to learn from their experience and learn from their, learn from their mistakes but how we do it is so darn important. You know, one of the things when we were writing this book, we talked with dozens and dozens of, of teenagers and asked them, who do you feel closest to, right? Because we know this close connection is so important in effective communication and is also probably the single, this closest thing to a silver bullet in, in sort of decrease in the, the, the risk of, you know, for anxiety and depression. And we asked the kids, who do you feel closest to? And sometimes it was my mom, my dad. Sometimes it was, you know, older brother, sister, aunt, uncle, my grandma, you know, my, my, my coach, my uh, a teacher, whatever. And then the follow-up question was, well, what made, what made you feel close to them? And the two things were, they listen to me without judging me. And they don't tell me what to do. Now, sure. some parents are gonna hear this like, well, of course I have to tell my kid what to do. You know, that's my job as his, as his, as his parent. 
which, which again is is true, but there's there's a how there's 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 sharing you know teaching in ways that maintain the relationship in ways that don't undermine their autonomy, where we're we're giving them the benefit of our experience and giving them better tools to be effective in their lives in their communication without being you know with really being authoritative with our using our natural authority without being authoritarian you know kind of because I said so type approach. When, when I think about why I was closer with, with one of my grandfathers than my, sort of both my parents, it's, it's almost as if grandparents have freed themselves from this sort of self-inflicted and probably not particularly productive pressure. Like you were saying, as soon as a parent hears, well, I have to tell you what to do. You know, do you really? You know, like, uh, you know, you know it, <laughs> gra- grandparents are just like, they're, it's not like grandparents will let you get away with anything. The grandparents have just slightly reduced the pressure, right? Because they've been through this before. They kind of probably understand that it's not as, whatever it is, it's not as important as it feels to the parent. And just by being slightly more relaxed, they could Mm -hmm. be saying the exact same thing, even enforcing potentially stricter rules, but it's like the volume's been turned down slightly. And so it gets heard and it's, heard in a different way because the receiver is more open to receiving it. Right. And I think, you know, as a, as a grandparent, I mean, I certainly, I, I think that many things that my kids do, that my grandkids do, seem, they don't seem like a big deal to me, but they do more right. to the parents. And, and, right. and certainly you, you have a couple of kids, you, you grow up, you realize this is not a big deal to grow out of it or whatever. And I think being able to convey that kind of attitude to kids is really beneficial. And I, that's why we talk about this 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 goal for parents of kind of of working in this direction of being a non anxious presence, where we kind of are, are we can take a long view, as we talked about before, of assuming that and and, and we can re, be respectful of if kids kids have to go through some hard stuff in order to develop the confidence they can handle their, their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we, we really, if we take more of that grandfather perspective. <laughs> You know, there's, we start one of the chapters with a story from um, from Fred. Uh, what's Fred's last name? The, Fred uh, Rogers, Mr. Yeah, Rogers. Fred, yeah, Fred, yeah, Fred yeah, Rogers, yeah. Mr. Rogers, where, where he's saying that uh, he was running, he, he was he was walking on this wall, this kind of this kind of stone wall, and his mother and his grandmother said, "Honey, you got to get down. You're going to fall." And, and the grandfather says, "Let him stay up there. He can do it." Yes, and he said. Eventually, I was running on the wall, and he, he said, I, "I I was like seven years old. I still remember that to this day. My my grandfather had confidence in me, and and that that's what we want. We we, we want to communicate to kids that we have confidence that they can handle things that 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 and that they can figure out their life ultimately." Well, I think uh, one of the things I would say uh, there's a great book I've recommended to people uh, called Adult Children of. Uh, emotionally immature parents. Um, (laughs) Is there another type? Sorry. (laughs) No, no. But, but the premise being like at the root of you know, sort of raising a more self-driven child, communicating effectively uh, the story with Fred Rogers, which I loved, which is like dealing with your own shit. Like how often is it that you're, you know, having struggle, you're struggling to communicate with your kids because you're communicating from a place of anxiety or from a place of insecurity or a place of insert emotion that if you dealt with in your own life, uh, whether it's going to therapy or reading or, you know, taking better care of yourself or sleeping better, whatever it is, uh, you would more effectively communicate because certain barriers or headwinds 
would have been removed. And it strikes me this sort of a through line of what we're talking about, whether it's the sort of extreme political views that have led to estrangement or it's the pressures of these parents trying to force their kids to go into some college. It's it's they're coming at it from a place of being very immature themselves, not dealing with their own issues. And then so you have uh, a 10 year old talking to a person who's emotionally only like 15 or 16, of course, it's going to be explosive and non-productive. You've got two children arguing with each other instead of a fully formed adult talking to empathetically to a young child. Well, I think it's a great point. And we have a chapter in the book about the language of an, of, 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 of non-anxious presence and simply the idea that, that when we, it helps if in any given situation, there's like, there's one adult, right? Right. And so when we as parents, if we can be more non-anxious, if we can be less reactive, if we can take the long view, our energy changes their energy and it makes them much more able to think, you know, with, with, with their more developed faculties, with their executive functions and, and, and just make better decisions. But when we as a parents, if, if we are alarmist and if we are yelling and screaming and, and everything's a crisis, then, then both our higher faculties and our kids' higher faculties are nowhere to be seen. And, you know, we're, we were acting like children or we're, we're, we're looking like we people who are just terrified. And, and no good thinking comes out of fear-based thinking. And so it, it was a whole chapter on how we can simply be more effective in, in helping our kids, including giving them really important messages of, of, of values and, 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 and how to live life well. When we work on ourselves to be more non-anxious, to have more of that stoic philosophy, you know, the calm amidst the storm. I mean, the, the fascinating thing for me in this, this whole time with my, with my son is people just over and over and over send to me and to my wife, how are you guys so calm about this? And for me, at least I'll say, you know, I prioritize being well-rested and exercising every day and practicing. I practice transcendental meditation as does my wife now. And I mean, in many ways, can there be anything more alarming than being on the phone with your kid when he's falling apart and you turn out he has a brain tumor and I'm 600 miles away. But still, what I knew in that moment is the best way that I can help my kid is not to panic because I, I can always panic later. And because my wife was the one who was you know 20 miles away, not 600, if when I was able to help when I could stay calm, it helped her stay calm. And when she could stay calm, it could help him stay calm. And then, then we just trusted that, that we're getting the best medical help that we can. And it's, you know, and, and this, so this, you know, this whole COVID thing has been challenging, challenging, challenging. But, you know, so much of the way kids are, the lessons they're going to take out of this past year and a half is their own experience. But also, as they look to us as parents and caregivers saying, how, do, how are we looking at this? This is a challenge and we're going to get through it together. Or, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world, which is kind of a hard message to then get, get out of bed and pull the heads, your head out from underneath the cover and say, oh, I'm ready to take on the world. Well, yeah. And, and, and the idea that uh, it, you can't, like, we seem to be able to respond well in crises, like truly dangerous situations. Like I'm always amazed, like, you know, my kid will be doing something and uh, like, it's actually not safe and they need to get inside right now or something, mm. right? You know, in that instance, you can communicate effectively. You know, we, we seem to know what to do in true emergencies. When, when our adrenaline, our body, you know, when something takes over, then we know what to do. The problem is in this sort of middle ground. So it's, I guess what I'd, what I'd say is like, if you've ever responded well in an emergency, what you should take from that is 
oh, I do know how to do this. It's really about how to do this more consistently hmm. in slightly less severe situations. Like, you know you're capable of it, so now it's just a matter of uh, figuring out how to do it uh, in, uh, in everyday situations. Yes. I, 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 I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many kids have told me over the years that, that, that about their that their parents their parents screamed at them for yelling at their brother. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some irony there. About of it. course, yeah. It's not what you say; it's what you do. Don't talk about it. Be about it. Mm. Well, amazing guys. I love this book. I love the first one. It was an honor to talk again, and uh, you've been very helpful to me in my parenting journey. So, so please, uh, please don't stop. Thanks so much. We love we love how you think. You 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 you, you sound like you have a wonderful family, and that's so great for all of you. Well, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a blast talking with you. If you can hear that, that is my actual Amor Fati challenge coin, which I keep in my pocket. It says Amor Fati on the front. It's got flame. The idea that everything you throw in front of a fire is fuel for the fire. And then on the back, it has the quote from Nietzsche, who coins this phrase. No pun intended. Amor Fati. Not merely to bear what is necessary, but love it, to see what it is, to see what it can become, and to make it into that. That's what the idea of Amor Fati is. And you can check this out at store.dailystoic.com. We have a pendant too, uh, but it's one of the things I try to think about on a daily basis. How do I love what life has chosen for me, and how do I turn it into something that in retrospect I wouldn't have traded for? So Amor Fati, be well. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most people think about when they hear the words Black history? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black history, Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, 
their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.